As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Dungeons & Pop, where nerd things happen. We don't just play D&D. We play a fan-made D&D that takes pop culture from the 80s all the way to the to the 2000s. We play Fantasy Power Rangers. Last time on Breaking Point. And I would like to ask what is being concealed here? A dead body. Damn it! Because the sheriff is about to kick all of them out because Jez failed her role and made an ass of herself. Don't you mean ass of myself? This is not D&D. Dungeons and Pop. A tabletop variety podcast which updates Mondays weekly we alternate currently between two campaigns a monster of the week campaign called breaking point and a DD campaign called adventures with attitude we occasionally have soda breaks where we discuss out of character our experiences with rpgs as well as monster mash which makes adventures and monsters for your homebrew setting this podcast involves topics such as violence sex and mental illness if this might disturb you or those around you, please reconsider. It's okay. Privacy and confidentiality have been protected, with personal information removed when possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis center, emergency services, or national hotline. In the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. You matter. Hey, this is Kate. It's been, I don't know, at least a half an hour, maybe two, since I did a crossover. So, that's this. I... Recently presented Bob from Twisted Britain with a challenge for his show and then for sort of the Monday morning quarterbacking. That's a sports ball thing, right? Still, even if sports ball is not happening. Anyway, he came on my show as well as doing a follow-up for his show. 
So check out episodes 45 and 47 of Twisted Britain for my appearances there. And just check out the show in general because it's true crime, but not quite as heavy and intense as some of the other ones. And so, as you'll hear, it's more story-based. This, as you would expect, meanders a fair amount. We do talk about the pandemic and the quarantine, and I get it that we've all heard a ton about it. And I don't blame you if you decide this is not for you. But on the other hand, we talk about an aspect of the pandemic that isn't getting a whole ton of attention and I think is super important. So if you can, maybe listen. We try to keep it light in terms of what we are personally experiencing. You'll hear. That's the point. And, you know, we also talk about differences between the U.S. and the U.K. and research and true crime and the absence thereof and serial killers and podcasters because, well, are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss. Hi everyone, I'm Bob and I am the host of Twisted Britain. Twisted Britain is a podcast based on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. Anything that basically kind of comes up and I go, that's cool, that's the kind of stuff I like. But the twist for Twisted Britain is that every week I get set a challenge by another podcaster and then I go off and try and find a story. And that's me, I'm Bob. You are, you're Bob. And I mean, you you started... Just a little bit after I did, and so we've sort of been walking this crazy cult line that is podcasting for for almost two years. Yeah, coming up. Well, you're just over two years, and I'm coming. Yeah, coming up uh, in about three months. So yeah, just about two years now. I did have the the blessing of starting with a co-host, uh, Nadine, which should never go unmentioned. Uh, our first four forty-ish episodes of Twisted Britain was me and her telling. Uh, stories together um, and just uh, due to well life really uh, it's down to just little old me now and how has that been that that process for you of adjusting format I've liked and disliked it at the same time I would say what I dislike about it is I liked having a bit of um, back and forth between somebody that's why I tried to include a, a phone call and a chat with people in the new episodes is so that there's some of that kind of level of humanity in it and that was the big thing that drew me about the, the, the original structure of Twisted Britain was the two of us telling stories to each other. Um, what I would say I have liked about it is uh, the complete control over everything now, um, which sounds really horrible. Not that Nadine was ever controlling about it, but the fact that I can go, I can't record tonight. It doesn't matter. It's only me that's that's answerable to. I just know if I record mm-hmm. late, then my edit's going to run on a bit later, and that's entirely my fault. But I kind of like that. Uh, autonomy from it but i do miss having the bang forward i you know i i i have two shows 
Right. I, I also have a, a, a non-murdery cybercrime show uh, called Life World with Derek. And so I have both. I have the, like mine, I always have a guest pretty much, but it's my show. Yeah, and so it's the same as you're you're talking about. That if I if I decide to cancel, if I flake out, if I edit late or whatever, that's all on me. I also have literally no schedule, you know. So I've had two weeks go by where I haven't produced anything, and I've had other weeks where I've had five shows in a week. Yeah, and that that's my my sort of prerogative to do. Whereas with Life World, I'm beholden to Derek and. Like right the second I know that I'm late editing a thing and I feel terrible about it, but I'm <laughs> just sort of trying to go easy on myself. Like the whole world is burning around me and so it will happen when it happens. We'll make this chat as fun as we possibly can and then you can forget about the edit for now. That'll be fine. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and so it's it's that there's there's pros and cons, you know, that that having the the regular show with another person means we can establish the rapport and adjust format and work it together and it's not just me that makes all those decisions which is both a pro and a con yeah i would agree it is definitely a pro and a con because the one thing i always remember doing especially when i wasn't possibly as prepared as i should have been for an episode recording is not being worried about what i was saying was more worried about actually if if nadine turns up and she had an excellent story and i let it down by just waffling pish for 20 minutes that's not fair on her whereas now if i just waffle pish for 20 minutes well, that's all I've got. <laughs> it's, it's down to me. It was it was my pitch in the first place, so it doesn't matter. Right, right, right. Well, and that's... Uh, it's always interesting to me when I have the opportunity to go on somebody else's show and let somebody else drive entirely. Yeah. Because, you know, with, with Life World, Derek and I take turns who brings the story and the other person just basically makes wisecracks and generally provides color commentary and so that's 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 nice to have weeks off where all i have to do is show up and be a wise ass like i can do that i'm good at that yeah that 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 comes natural i'm all right with that (laughs) right but then with you know with my show like i have to be on i have to be aware of what the conversation is and and i'm sort of there are times where i i think well i know that I, i come off sort of deliberately is like i don't know what we're going to talk about i don't know i don't have any control over the conversation you know <laughs> like <laughs> that sort of mindless reaction which is not true i was gonna say that 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 must be a deliberate choice you're making though it is it is it's it's a case that there are whether I, i'm accurate or not is a different question but i judge certain people as more comfortable if i act clueless but there's a reason why before we hit record, I ask, you know, are there topics that are off limits and, yeah. you know, do you want to be anonymous and things like that? Because I can kind of see where the conversation is going and steer it away, you know, from, from certain topics or whatever. But that means that I have to stay on the whole time. Yeah, and I see what you mean. It, you that... know, and it's interesting to me because I, I'm more of an extrovert than I realized Okay. Uh, would you would you consider yourself not to be then? Well, I mean, this whole so this is a topic that I I've been actually giving a lot of thought to recently with the with the quarantine and the pandemic of hearing people describe themselves as introverts and extroverts, and let me just take a moment to explain what they actually are because I think people 
mistake social anxiety for introversion. So you can be an outgoing introvert and you can be a socially anxious extrovert. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, introversion doesn't mean I'm comfortable in my own skin or I like being alone. Introversion means being around other people takes a lot of energy out of me and I I need to recharge alone after. Like the perfect example for me of that is shy people that get on stage. That that to me yes. is just the epitome of that. You know, somebody that's off stage is is kind of uh, happy to be the wallflower as such, but then gets on stage and can belt out a, sh- a show tune like you've never heard. That to me is that perfect example of what you're talking about. That kind of sh- on the on the face of it, extrovert, but actually they're not at all. Well, or, you know, or the, or that that. They can be shy, they can be avoidant of other people, but they they charge up, they get amped up after being around yeah. other people. And and that is more me than I had realized. Uh, I live a fairly isolated life. I'm on full disability because I broke my back. And so I don't get out a whole lot. And I would have, before all this, described myself as introverted. But realizing now, like the number of times that... I don't feel it. I don't feel on or energized or focused or I'll have a headache. You know, whatever. All of the reasons that, you know, not tonight, dear, I have a headache, that kind of thing prior to recording. And I'm learning to, for the most part, ignore that and just record because I feel so much better afterward. I, I, I gain a lot of energy from the connection with other people and from the conversation. And I guess I hadn't really thought about it one way or the other. I had just sort of assumed that since I stay home all the time, I must be introverted. But the reality is I'm somewhere either in the middle or I'm I'm because I am pretty socially anxious. Like I'm constantly worried about imposing upon other people or being a pain in the ass because I am like I I own this. <laughs> I, I, I'm the complete opposite of that. This this quarantine being locked in the house thing is one of the hardest things I've done. I'm I'm the sort of person that goes out. Well, we, we record Twisted Britain in a pub, and I record it in a pub because it's one of my comf- most comfortable places to be. Is is out and about, uh, and I go out a couple of times a week. Um, but you know, do the, the the pantos every year and stuff like that. And I just I like being. It sounds really. It makes me sound like a complete arsehole, but I quite like being loud. <laughs> um. And, and when I started podcasting, it was actually, I almost had to rein a bit of that in because you have to remember that you're, you're presenting to somebody that has to be able to listen to it that's not in a social scenario. It's more of a controlled environment that you're listening to it in. Uh, and it can't be that way. Let's have a lovely time tonight. It has to be a, I'm delivering you something here. Um, so to, to me, to be like, we're coming up in two weeks in the house now, and it's been absolutely lovely. I mean, if it carries on for much longer, I think we're probably going to end up divorced. Um, because the wife did not marry me to spend this much time with me at all. Um, uh, but yeah, I find it really odd, and I don't want to generalize here at all, but I feel I can slightly, being part of the fraternity and, 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 and sorority that is a podcasting world, um, it tends to be people, I think, that have considered themselves to be a bit introverted. Um, and it seemed, and, and especially until recently, it's been quite a niche. Uh, media area whereas actually now that it's kind of getting more and more mainstream you're finding more and more 
uh, extroverted people getting involved in it. Um, I, f- I found it a very interesting conversation, especially having conversations with people recently who quite openly say to me, "Look, I'm you know this is not what I you know I'm not like this off mic." And I was like, "That's really I find that an odd thing that you're willing to put yourself out there to potentially tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people listening to it um, and say." Um, this isn't what I find comfortable. I find that a very odd human trait in people. I, I, I mean, absolutely. Like I, I realize that, like I spend a lot of my time very quiet because I'm home alone. Yeah. You know, I have four children. I'm married, and they all go off to their schools. My husband's a professor, and so they all disappear, and I have the house to myself. And so I, I feel like I, I think that's part of it is that I, I'm used to spending a lot of time in silence yeah and now suddenly it's never silent in my house <laughs> and and dealing with that but but i think that that comfort with silence i mistook for introversion and i'm also uh fairly contrary so the fact that i am not allowed to go out and about and visit people now is what makes me want to yeah because you're being told don't do that makes you want to do it even more <laughs> exactly. Funnily enough, I think my but, my, but... my parents are a bit like that. <laughs> I think <laughs> my dad, my dad's in the house very much. Similar to yourself, he's been kind of he's got issues with his legs and stuff like that. He can't go out and about so much. But when they kind of told them that over seventies had to stay in the house, he went, "No." I was like, "But you'd be in the house anyway. Like this isn't a oh, but I have the I, I had the option to go out." And you're like, "Well, that's that's different. It's still being ridiculous." Yeah. A hundred, like you know, I have a, an autoimmune disorder, and so before parts of the U.S. were in quarantine, and I'm rolling my eyes visibly here right now because I I have a problem with how the U.S. is handling this <laughs> so whole does the situation. Rest, so does the rest of the world, but never mind. <laughs> yeah, that. Um, but but early on, you know, I I have been in touch with my doctors since like late February. And it wasn't until a week or two into March that anyone in the U.S. started saying quarantine and, and self-isolate and social distancing like that. And my doctor was first like, go ahead and travel, go ahead and do whatever. But then oh, probably a week prior was when I got the phone call of actually, no, scratch that, stay home. Yeah. And so I've been sort of personally on self-isolation earlier than most of the other people around me and what's been interesting is that that you know the concept of uh stages of grief phases of grief right which is you have the initially disbelief and then bargaining and then anger and then depression acceptance although they don't go it's not discrete stages and people move back and forth within that so i I do kind of hate when people get too structured with that and i would say that I mean, I'm speaking specifically for the UK government here, and I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and let people know that I'm not a massive fan of the, the British government at the moment and haven't been for quite a while. But um, <laughs> I think that's what, in my mind, they're trying to keep away from, is trying to keep the nation out of a depression. Uh, and I don't mean like an economic one, I just mean a mental state. There's a lot of, here is, um, there's a lot of talk of keeping yourself mentally sane because, well, there's nothing worse than four walls around you. But at the same time, there's, there's, they're putting no li- time limits on anything. So they're not saying, you know, we're, we'll be, originally they said you'll be locked up for three weeks. But then, you know, it slips in a wee press conference that it might be a bit longer than that. And we might be able to relax it and we might be able, 
And to me, that feels a bit like drip feeding optimism to to keep people. <laughs> I love that. Uh, keep keep people out of a depression if they think that there might be an end. Then that's an easy way to do that. Yeah, we so we're having still a lot more of the sort of disbelief in bargaining. Yeah. Here, so you know, I, I I there are people that I strongly respect and that I care about who are very much in the disbelief phase of like it's not that big a deal. I don't know who anybody who's sick. I don't get sick that often. I'm just going to go around and live my life and. Yesterday, the CDC, uh, Center for Disease Control in America, came out and said, wear a mask in public. This is more airborne than we realized it was. You should wear a mask in public. And on the same day, we have, what's his name in the White House? (laughs) Who's like, I'm not going to wear a mask when I'm meeting dignitaries from other countries. And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, (laughs) you know, so I'm all right with that if he wants to not wear a mask then he can crack on and get it please (laughs) that would be fine honestly (laughs) but you know but 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 that having that model there's a lot of people out there who are still going about their daily things still going on unnecessary trips to the grocery store or clothing shopping or whatever just because they're bored not because they really need the thing or they're still taking their kids on play dates and you know, and I see people like in, in a public park or whatever where they're, you know, visual quotes, social distancing. But it's like, no, you're not. You're standing side by side. Yeah. You know, they, I- it, it, so there's there's that. And then this idea of bargaining, which is like, if I do X, then Y will happen. So like if I wash my hands and don't touch my face, then I won't get sick. And it's like, that's all well and good, except it's airborne. Yeah. You know, and, more than that. You know, so th- things like that. People just are not, we're not tuned in. So they're not at all concerned in the U.S. about concepts of depression and mental health at this point. Not yet. At all. Not yet. I think, I mean, I know you've got a different model of government over there, obviously. And it's a much bigger country and you've got state, state rule and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, somebody's going to have to step up and say, eh, you're all right. Because there's going to be a lot of people who aren't all right. Um, and, and won't do anything until some uh, somebody just says you need to. This is the phone line. You phone if you're not all right, or whatever it happens to be. Um, I mean, I caveat all of this with the fact that one of the big headlines yesterday was we're going to have a warm weekend. Can everybody still stay inside? Because it doesn't matter that it's sunny. We're still quarantining. Yeah. So they are drip feeding optimism, but it's still to a uh, general public that are not fully on board. Yeah. Yeah. We we have in the U.S. a shortage on under ideal conditions. We have a shortage of psychiatric beds for people in crisis and we have a shortage of therapists. Like if you just decide that I'm just not handling things very well, I could use a therapist to talk things through. It can take six weeks or more to get placed with someone here, which is too long. Yeah. I mean, you could be, you know, and you could be very, very ill by the time the six weeks comes around. Exactly, and you know, like with with crisis beds, <laughs> the way it works in, I mean, it, it worked to a degree. It works similarly anywhere, but I can speak with authority for the way it works here because I've worked there. Is that if you show up in the emergency room with suicidal tendencies or a psychotic break or what have you, and you need to be admitted into a psychiatric facility, 
if there is a bed, congratulations. Yeah. They'll put you in the bed. But holiday weekends, for instance, long weekends, um, certain times of year, um, they, they just fill up. Especially like, like if you, you know, here's a hint for people is that if you really feel like you need a psychiatric hospitalization, if you could possibly arrange to have your crisis around like Tuesday or Wednesday <laughs> of a given week, you're more likely to get a bed. It's disgusting, but you know, but it's true. There's, and that if I'm, you show up, I'm only laughing because it's sad. <laughs> like, yeah, it really is. It is. It's awful, but it's a truth that if you show up in the emergency room on like a Saturday night, especially if it's Saturday of like Thanksgiving weekend, which for us is five days, um, <laughs> but by Saturday, all of the psych beds are full, and you can't be discharged except by the sort of the doctor in charge right the the resident in charge or whoever it is that you your case is assigned to who won't see you until the monday after the weekend and usually insists that you stay on the unit for 24 hours after they come on so like for the weekend yeah. you're effectively just held in place for safety but you don't get any treatment and then the Monday Which is arguably, kind of meet your doctor. Arguably, probably worse for somebody than at least being in a, uh, a familiar surrounding. It's it's I I can speak from personal experience that it's absolutely worse. Um, I in 2010 I had um a long medical illness and you know nine months of. Of, of exactly what everybody is going through of isolation. I was on home health care, which is when they they send a nurse to you because they believe you are too ill to leave the house. And it, at the end of November in 2010, it was Thanksgiving weekend. But luckily, this hit me on Thanksgiving night. So I was still able to get a bed. Um, I I had been told the day before, like, you, medically, you're done. Like, this is as good as you're going to get. Congratulations. You're done with treatment. We're not going to send the nurse to your house anymore. Uh, good luck. And up until that point, I had been struggling with depression, but you kind of justify it as, of course, I'm depressed. Look at what I'm dealing with. Look at how sick I am. Look at the, the surgical wounds that I'm recovering from or that kind of thing. And then when they told me, like, this is as good as you're ever going to get. And I was like, but I still don't feel well. I still I'm not OK. And so I ended up in, in a psychiatric unit that night and. Like I said, luckily, it was early enough in the weekend that I got a bed. It, it filled up very shortly afterward. And so I spent four days, uh, three days, in, in, without seeing a doctor, just being held in this place. And then all, on the almost fourth like a day, prison. I saw my doctor. It, it, that's very much what it feels like, except in a prison, you're at least allowed to, like, knit and <laughs> listen to music. Yeah. And... In a psychiatric unit, you, you don't get any knitting needles. You get, you know, markers, but not sharp pencils. Um, you can't wear a hoodie because you can't have the strings. You can't use a spiral notebook because people have been known to unwind the spiral and use that to self-harm. Um, you cannot have any electronics in most places. So it's in, I wouldn't go so far as worse than a prison because it's not punitive, but it is more isolative. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I spent, that's, the damaging part though as well is is the isolation part is probably it, what you're trying to get yes. away from anyway. Exactly. It was, it was not good. It was not good at all. And 
you know, and so by the time Monday rolled around and I could see my doctor, like I was like, <laughs> hi, I would like to go home right now. Please. Thank you. Here's the therapist name. Here's, you know, because I knew what to have my husband set up yeah. at home so that I could leave as early as possible. But that's on un- that's under normal circumstances. This was in 2010. This was sort of when things were operating as well as they operate. Yeah, in the US I was just mental health system. Just thinking there uh, as well, like going back along that lines of saying that the big part of this was going to be mental illness that ha- that, that comes along with uh, self isolation. Is you've got to wonder whether off the back of this um, pandemic, which is there's no other word for. Off the back of that, if obviously more money is going to have to be pouring into the entire healthcare system, they're going to have to find beds for, as we know, ventilators and, and, and people who are critically ill. But they're also going to have to find um, a buffer area for people who have not dealt with this well, uh, whether that's through sickness or through bereavement or, or, or through anything, that then you hope that there's an upshot afterwards that, well, we created this buffer zone, we created this extra capacity let's not remove it now you know you kind of hope that if if we're looking for a a positive sign of what's happening then then maybe the positivity is uh, a wider scaled healthcare system and and i mean across the world i know i know sitting in uk i'm i'm very lucky to be sat here with the nhs at our doorstep um but you would hope that healthcare systems around the world would see a better way of of dealing with the whole psyche of the human being, not just the, oh, you're an arsehole that fell over on a Saturday night, A&E. You know, you kind of hope that there's a an upshot after the amount of funding, especially the amount of funding that's been thrown into both the British and the American healthcare system recently. I hope so. I have, Because right now I know that there are even fewer psychiatric beds than usual because of the need for social distancing. So in 2010... I was in a psychiatric unit with a roommate and we were not allowed in the rooms during the day. So it was just sleeping hours, you know, and, and, you know, and our beds were on opposite sides of the room. So 10 feet apart or something like that, but there was no concept of social distancing or personal space or anything like that. And everybody would sit around a table in the day room, you know, during awake hours and things like that and i i know that they have had to restrict it down to one you know to single rooms and that kind of thing and they're not because we we always need to, to prioritize medical health over phys, or over mental health you just you have you have to stay alive in order to get out of a depression right and so i get that and yeah. that's that, a kind of that that's a kind of given any, don't you well, you know, you'd think, and, and so if you if you have a hospital that has an extra room, you can't extend your medic your mental health care into that room if you have a critical need for medical health first. Yeah, of course. So I'm very concerned. Like I, you know, I I've been on disability for six years now, but. I'm in touch with people who are still in the field and hearing some of the, 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 like the more, the people that were considered critical enough cases that under normal circumstances would be held in the emergency room until a bed could be found, even if that's two or three days, uh, which is not uncommon, um, now are being sent home and asked to just check in by phone. Like, that's terrifying. That is terrifying, yeah. Because if you're if you're not in a happy place in the first place, picking up the phone and just telling somebody, 
is the hardest thing you can do to then ask somebody once they've engaged to go away and do it again is well it's ridiculous um, and before i i mean i spent a good nine or ten years of my 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 career after leaving school i say career i, I left school and had no idea what i was going to do but i, I did a lot of I was a youth worker for years and years and we were working in kind of socially deprived areas <clears throat> and asking um, children and young people and by, I mean they were young adults who so talking about four, 14 through 18 years old that I was working with asking them to engage um, and once you've got them engaged and these are kids who are not just socially deprived but have had let's go with issues uh, at home um, I can't imagine having them had engage in a service and then say Thanks very much for coming along. We've got your name on the register now. Uh, can you just go home and, and phone us and let us know who you are? You would lose 80, 90, 100% of them instantly. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, the, the, there's this, it's so hard to pick up the phone in the first place and then to feel dismissed even if you're not actually dismissed. Yeah, exactly that. Especially when you've gone and, out of your way to, to make that uh, initial engagement. Yeah, and and... There are limits to our practitioners' rights to invade someone's privacy, right? Yes. So if I have made the decision that someone is healthy enough to send home, like when I was doing crisis work, I was not allowed to call them the next day and ask how they were doing <laughs> if they were over 18 years old. If they were under 18, I was allowed for about 24 hours to call the parent and check in. But if they were over 18, they were considered adults. And so if I made the decision to discharge them, that was me proclaiming they're safe to go home and I'm not allowed to check in. And that weighs on you. Yeah, because if you've made that decision to say, I think you're okay, then you then by default, phoning them to check if they're okay, you're questioning your own decision. Right. Which is um, almost robotic. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's, it's a removal well, it, of the human... It, 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 nature out of it it is it is it's a lot there's a lot of protocols and practices in place that leave you struggling and and the crisis world in particular works just a little differently from the rest of the mental health world so if i'm an ongoing therapist and i see you once a week i'm allowed to call and touch base in between appointments if i think that there's some reason to be concerned like let's say you're seeing me for grief uh you know bereavement therapy and i know that the anniversary is going to happen in between sessions i'm allowed to call in on the day and just say how are you doing today you know are you are you safe are you okay with a crisis clinician like i said it's the second that you are discharged from the emergency room i'm not allowed to call and check in yeah. on the other hand that's broken right <laughs> I, 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 I can't think of any other way of putting that that just doesn't seem very uh, I mean I'm no expert in it other than how I feel but I feel uh, to be that feels like a broken that's not an end just sending you home is not an end and it, and it should, no. shouldn't be seen no. as that it, 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 but, but I mean even if as the crisis clinician, like there were times where I would really impress upon people like, here is when my next shift is. Please call me and let me know you're okay. But if I'm sending them home, they're still going to feel dismissed. Yeah. And there's not a lot I can do about that. On the other hand, um, I don't know if you use the same um, acronym in, in the UK, but in the US it's called HIPAA, the Health Insurance 
Privacy and Portability Act, which is the thing that, that your doctor is not allowed to talk about your care with anybody else. You know, strict confidentiality unless you've signed a release, things like that. I, we and, have we have a similar thing, but because it's not covered under health insurance and stuff, like that, it's just the kind of um, the, Hippo- just, the Hippocrat- huh. yeah, the Hippocratic oath, you know, the the dot. <clears throat> well, sort of that we we have that, but but HIPAA is more all encompassing. Right. So, okay. like, I was never a medical doctor, but I was covered under HIPAA, and so um, let's say your partner ends up in the emergency room, if you provide a signed consent. For me to speak to her, then I'm allowed to talk to her. But right, okay, if you yeah. say n- n- no, um, and that's a bad example because emergency room, but 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 as a therapist, if you're seeing an outgo- outpatient therapist, um, if you provide consent, then then I can speak to her. But if you decline consent, then I can't even acknowledge that you are my patient. And if I run into you in the grocery store, I can't greet you first like if you greet me i can i can respond but otherwise if i greet you i've just identified you as a patient right okay so yeah and that you know and that breaks your confidentiality. so the exception to that is when you're doing crisis work for about a 24-hour period from when you enter the emergency room you don't have any confidentiality rights so you can tell me don't contact my spouse but if i'm sending you home to your spouse i'm allowed to contact them and let them know What's going right, okay. on? Um, you know, and I'm allowed to break that because in, it, it, basically once you've arrived in the emergency room, now we are talking about safety rather than privacy. And that is considered to be more important. And so I'm allowed to contact any what's called collateral, um, any outside person that I think might be able to give me information. And so I would contact people's parent or spouse or roommate or whoever it was that that I felt like you know and, and I wouldn't do it all the time because sometimes you feel like you're getting the full story from the person in front of you and other times you're like well you know I'm gonna send you home but I need some assurance that somebody's catching you on the other end yeah you've got to know that you're not sending them back to a worse scenario exactly and so so it's a it's a it's a weird system. It's a weird you know. There's a lot of loopholes in 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 strangeness to how it functions. And um, I, I wish I could tell I, you, you know, what the uh, what the equivalent is here. But I'm, I'm, having never been engaged in mental health services here, um, and, I, and I don't particularly, I don't think I know anybody that, that that works in it. I don't. I I would I would like to think there's there's that safety net here. Uh, and, and I'm only basing that on the level of compassion that kind of de- tends to go with the healthcare system um, in, in its entirety that, that I would imagine that there's some kind of um, compassionate safety net but I couldn't guarantee that there is but I, yeah like I say I think based on how the NHS works or how I know of it um, I would hope that there's something similar yeah it's such a, it's a strange we walk a strange line um when one one thing I think that that people need to know, you know, public safety announcement right now, you know, PSA, that HIPAA in the U.S. the privacy rules hold very very strong. There are very strong legal supports around it, and so if you want to call your partner or adult child's caregiver to get information about their care, it's not going to work. 
like the, those those boundaries about what a doctor can tell you about their patient. Doctor patient privilege is very, very strong. But let's say you have a loved one who is receiving almost any kind of care. It doesn't have to be mental health care. It can be care for diabetes, for instance. And you know that they are not maintaining medication or uh, diet, but they that you know that they're going to go and tell their doctor that they are. You are allowed to call the doctor and tell them things. So the doctor, you know, basically the call goes, hi, Dr. So-and-so. I'm not asking you to acknowledge that you know this person or not. I'm saying that if you have such and such a person as your patient, you should know this thing. Right, okay. Almost uh, an anonymous tip-off. To to a degree, yeah. And the same goes for mental health. Like you can call, you know, a loved one's therapist and say, I believe that they're telling you that they are safe, but you need to know that this is how they are behaving at home. Or you need to know that I am concerned about their safety or whatever it is, or that I believe that they are being abused or whatever. Like you can make those statements. Uh, They are not allowed to ask you any questions in return. And they can't, They like I said, they can never uh, acknowledge that, yes, yes, this is my client that I see on Tuesdays. But that is information that you, you as loved one are allowed to get out there. In the same bag, though, can they disregard that information? I mean, do you know, like, I'm just imagining a scenario where I phone up and say, you know, my brother is a type 1 diabetic, um, and I phone up his uh, diabetic nurse and say, oh, look, he's doing nothing but eating Mars bars and keeps talking about one hypo and whatever, you know. And then he goes in. Are they then going to say to him, uh, oh, we heard this on the phone, or... Or, or do you know? Do you know what I'm getting at? Like, it could I could be telling them anything. Um, well, well, and and that's the thing. So they can't take your word necessarily as um, superior to the, the to the patient's word, but it it will flag the next appointment as do a little more investigation, ask a few more questions than you might normally. Right. Yeah. You yeah, know, that, that and, makes sense. So you just kind of bring it to the forefront, just an extra piece of information to the pie almost. Exactly. And so like for, I don't know the full process for, med- you know, for medical, it depends on the the, the disorder. You know, I, I don't know enough about diabetes to know whether there are extra testing that they can do or what questions they would ask or whether they would do like a like when you're pregnant, tests, they do yeah. a gestational diabetes test, and I don't know if they would do something like that, or like I don't, I, I, I don't know, but I do know that that for a therapist, uh, if I got a call, and and I didn't do therapy very long because I don't like it, but <laughs> if, if I when I did, if I got a call, which I did once, I got a call from from um, one of my clients' partners to say she's going to come in and tell you everything is fine, but I know that she is self-harming. Right, okay. Um, and so I didn't want to damage that relationship in terms of I didn't want to sort of out the partner as like, hey, they called and told on you. Yeah. Um, but I did have to do an extra level of like a sort of crisis evaluation during our next appointment. Like we couldn't just go into the normal pattern and routine of 
how are things going and let's talk about your family or whatever. I mean, she, this, this particular woman was big on, <laughs> I was, I was a terrible therapist. I was big on what I called <laughs> navel gazing, like where she would just sort of, she would go off on like feeling guilty for owning too many things or she wanted to rehash issues that I know had been covered by a prior therapist about arguments she had had with her mother. And at the end of the day, what she liked was being able to say, I'm in therapy. Right. Like okay. that, it, that was a, helped. It, was a, it was a badge to her. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it helped define her, her place. And when I sort of skirted the idea of like, you know, you're doing pretty well. Maybe we could drop to every other week. Maybe you could drop therapy altogether for a while because in my view, therapy should be a short-term assist through a difficult time and then you go on and live your life. And then if you have to go back to therapy later, you do, but it shouldn't become a lifestyle. I was going to say that. It's a fix, not a lifestyle. Right. And when I said that to her, she damn near burst into flames. <laughs> she was just like, how did, like she, she literally went immediately from my office to my supervisor's office to complain that how dare I decide whether she needed therapy, that it was her decision. And I was like, okay, see, this is why they call me a professional. I was going to say, how dare you with your, um, your expertise and your qualifications make this decision? How very dare you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, but so, so this was, this was an important thing to her is to, be seen as needing therapy, but she did not want to be seen as a crisis case. She did not want to be psychiatrically admitted. Um, for a long time, she denied that she ever had been, although it became clear later that she probably had. And so when her partner called to say she's self-harming, I didn't want to say, hey, your partner just called. But I did have to go into more, like, instead of just the immediate tell me about what incident in your, you know, when you were eight that you want to talk about today. But I had to be like, no, 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 hang on. Let's just do a safety evaluation. I'm going to go through and, and fill out this form. Uh, and we're going to go through in some detail uh, whether you have suicidal thoughts, self-harm thoughts, or whether you have acting. You know, just I have to take her word at the end of the day. Like I can't necessarily just immediately hospitalize somebody based on their their partner's say so but i had to document that i had taken it seriously and spoken to her in some depth about her safety just a level of due diligence really like can that that um you have you know you know you right. have a, a level of professionalism that you have to follow but you also have to follow that level of kind of you, you have a duty of care there that says i have to now follow up on something because i believe it may be true mm-hmm you know, if, if for instance, her, her partner had phoned and said, uh, I think there's something not right. She's killed five people this week. You know, you can take that as a level beyond self-harm. I'm using extremes, obviously. Um, you know, you can... You, <laughs> sure you are. Yeah, honestly. You can tell who's the true crime podcaster. Honestly, not me. Um, <laughs> uh, you can tell, you know, you can use that level. I don't believe she's killed five people, um, but I do believe there's maybe something wrong. So you've got that duty of care to make sure that you've done what you feel is... Uh, an acceptable level of investigation, I suppose. Right. Right. Exactly that. And one of the, to me, uh, frustrating isn't quite the right word, um, but one of the fuckeries of, of the way states' rights work in the United States is that rules can be extremely different, just a few miles apart. So I worked in New Hampshire for a while, and then I worked in Massachusetts. And I, I mean... We're talking 
maybe 45 minutes apart, the, the, the location of the offices, but the rules were entirely different. So in, in Massachusetts, I can take collateral information, but the vastly most important source of information is the person in front of me, right? In, in New Hampshire, I can hospitalize you like your neighbor could hospitalize you without me ever talking to you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like the, it's, 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 an, it's, so there was a, there was a situation that happened when I was working up there, um, where it was at the, in, in the next county over. So I, I did not know any of the players firsthand, but it made for fun, uh, water cooler talk <laughs> at work. And there was a nurse at one of the, um, I don't remember if she was an emergency room nurse or a psychiatric nurse, but she was familiar enough with the system. And she had two boyfriends at the same time. And rather than explore an alternative lifestyle or, you know, a polyamorous lifestyle or whatever, she just maintained these two boyfriends separately. And if she wanted to have a weekend alone with one, she would psychiatrically hospitalize the other. <laughs> and vice versa. I mean, that is... A different lifestyle. <laughs> it might not be polyamorous, but it's different. <laughs> it's different. It's it's alternative for sure. And it took, I mean, quite a while. I would six months to a year before anything could really be proven. Because of course, like, what are you going to do if you are involuntarily psychiatrically admitted? You're going to lose your fucking mind. I was going to say you're going to you're going to need to be fucking admitted at some point, <laughs> right? Is it is and it bad that in my head I want to know what she called it? Like you're just going away for a wee weekend. It's one of those wee weekends for you now. <laughs> you know, I, I bet right. you I had a cute wee, cute wee sentence for each of them. It's time for a wee a wee visit. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think you just you just need to recharge with your because in 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 New Hampshire there's really only one hospital that can take involuntary admissions and so, oh, the way, so they the were way sharing the a, they were sharing beds like weekends off they, they, weekend well, on and weekend off they, basically you know <laughs> she just had a standing reservation and she was you know perhaps an hour away from this uh, facility and you up there. There's actually a courtroom on site in the hospital. And so, like, as crisis clinician, quite often it was me that was making the, the ultimate determination of whether somebody was admitted. And if I made that decision, I had to go and testify in court um, three days later as to why. And I don't know why three, pretty arbitrary, but that was the number of days. And the hearing has to happen, like, it has to be available. But if no one shows up, then they just let the person go home. So she would fill out the paperwork, which you as patient are not allowed to see. And if no one shows up for your hearing, then you're just discharged. So it took a while for them to figure out who was filling out this paperwork. And <laughs> how do you the, prove that all the same I'm not crazy? <laughs> right? I, well, that's exactly what it, what it came down to. It's like, you know, these you know these two men sort of going, I'm not crazy. I, I, I really not. I, no, I'm not. I'm just pissed off. And <laughs> to finally convince somebody to pull up the paperwork and, and realize. Like, that's, oh. um, that's my, that's my missus's handwriting right there. Yeah, no, that, exactly. So exactly. so makes sense. Um, no, not that, not that I like to judge, um, but I will. 
Um, she <laughs> she was the one that needed to go to the hospital, I think, rather than the two guys. <laughs> she ended up in prison, so there's that. Oh well, fuck but, it. She ended up somewhere. Then that's all right. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, but just that that's there's a there's a line between like I think it's really important to be able to get collateral information. But perhaps New Hampshire leans too hard, heavily on it. No, and this has been, oh goodness, almost fifteen years since I worked in New Hampshire. So, you know, ten, uh, a little more than ten, I guess, since we we moved down to Massachusetts. So they may have changed that to a degree. Although I can say that in uh, twenty seventeen, I was involved in someone's hospitalization, and at that right. point, they did not really rely at all on that person's uh, reports that that I filled out paperwork and the person was admitted based on my say-so. I do like that we've managed to go almost full circle to she thought she was smart, but maybe she was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, and and so for that, people need to to listen to your episode uh, 46. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And... um, (laughs) <laughs> because yeah, we 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 talk about a specific case in yours where where someone's I mean she batshit crazy I believe was the phrase that you used and that is absolutely true like sociopathic as fuck is another yeah I like that a lot clinical yeah. term yeah, yeah that I would use <laughs> <laughs> but that that that's one of the, the the hardest things is to have someone who is both experiencing mental illness and is really smart because. Yeah. You, when you're, you, you sort of talk your way into this is how things are. And I, w- I would say that's definitely, since, since we brought up the kind of sociopathic part of it, it was one of the things I think we, that I have found doing the research for Twisted Britain is when you, you've come across these criminals, none of them, well, not none of them, majority of them are incredibly intelligent human beings. Uh, to, they had, slightly removed from normal humanity um, and I'm not going to give any of them credit um, we've added most of them to a list of bad bastards but n- very few of them are dumb I-, I don't like that term dumb criminal because it doesn't seem to fit right with most of the things that well not none of the big cases or anything that we've talked about and and probably not ones that you know that people would go to for podcasting reasons um, dumb criminal doesn't sit well with me um, sociopathic as fuck, however, definitely does. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, feel free to use that. I mean, absolutely, it's it's. You know, I I try not to use too much jargon, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's not get bogged down in it. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah, absolutely the, the I mean, if they're if they are a a dumb criminal, they get caught after one go. Yeah, you don't become a criminal. You you you're just dumb. You just get dumb and you just jail. caught. Yeah, and so you, have- you know, so that's one of the things that always makes me a l- little bit, or sometimes a lot, crazy when we, we try to talk about serial killers and what they are and what they are not, right? Because we don't have any idea. For one, the only serial killers we've ever talked to are the ones who get caught. Yes, indeed, and that's what I was going to so- say. Everybody jumps back to the, you know, the Kemper thing. You know, giving himself up because he thought he was too smart. That's not a smart move, you know. It, no, he felt awful about what he was doing. There, there's some kernel of empathy inside this very unempathic, sociopathic as fuck man. Yeah, and so and, yeah, he, he he turned himself in. And yes, the whole level of you know he started helping people with how 
uh, you know, profiling and all that kind of stuff. It makes a wonderful story to watch on the television, but at the same time, I'm not going to uh, collate what he did in his uh, level of profiling in his mind with what Fred West did over here. You know, they, they were two incredibly different human beings doing, 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 I mean, taking part in the same hobby, I suppose, is one way of looking at it, but doing it in a very different way. And you can't profile from that. And, and like you say, the people who get caught are not the ones that we need to worry about. It's the ones that you can't see, the ones that are continually sociopathic um, right. and out and about. Not that I believe that we're living in a world full of monsters. Um, well, not. Well, we, I mean, we kind of are, but that's fine. Um, I don't think <laughs> we're living in a world full of serial killers because, in order, like, in order to kill in the first place, you need to be pushed to the limits of humanity, and in order to do it again and again, or mentally you've unwell. effectively lost. Yeah, well, that's in some way. I don't know which limit of humanity you're pushed to. But yes, okay, it, sorry. Uh, you know what I mean? But but in some direction, you're pushed right to the edge of what we consider to be acceptable. Socially human. acceptable, yeah. Right. And and so, on the one hand, we haven't talked to a, you know, visual quote, successful serial killer because they all get caught. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that many are, are probably operating that we have no idea about, that we don't even know are in operation, much less why or what they're doing or how they're staying hidden you know and on the other hand i think that many people that are already in jail who have again with the visual quotes only killed one person (laughs) they are probably serial killers in the sense that they would do it more and more and more if they could but they're not smart enough yeah apprentice (laughs) <laughs> apprentice serial killers <laughs> serial killer adjacent right yeah, yeah. um and yeah and that's what i mean for me personally when i'm talking about when i'm doing research for twisted britain and when i'm doing my kind of the stuff that, that tickles my fancy as such is I, I prefer the historical cases because there's an end story there if you, if you know what i mean so when you're talking about um Talking me wrong, I listen to a lot of, a lot of true crime podcasts, and the things that have happened in the last two or three years, you know, I still find them very interesting because it's that that human psyche that that, that interests me. But um, the stuff that that I find the most um, that I find myself most engaged with, and the stuff that I want to tell the story of, which is why I always say story rather than case, because it tends to be something that is finished as such. So if you look at something from the I'm picking something at random. If you look at one of the Glasgow Square Mile murders, um, which all happened around the kind of 1870s, um, I can tell you the full story there because, well, it was the 1870s, so nobody's fucking alive anymore. It doesn't matter. Um, and to me, that that whole aspect around looking at true crime there is I can tell you start, middle, end. Whereas when we're talking about um, kind of serial killers that either got caught or give themselves up, the end was imposed upon, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it, it you, the, the end has been created rather than it being a story. I don't know if I'm explaining myself properly here. No, I follow exactly. Um, there's just such this... I think that we collectively, um, Western nations perhaps, um, the US for sure, but a couple others as well, sort of got congratulatory in the 1970s and 1980s, um, having coined the term serial killer and identified it. We talk about the 1970s and 1980s as being these decades of like 
the 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 time of the serial killer when most of them were in action or whatever. And I think that no, it's it's a case of that's when we started paying attention, and yeah, it's absolutely. when we started defining when, it in a different way. It's when police were caught up with the criminal as such. And, and Nadine and I talked about this in an episode um, where we were talking about um, oh, I can't remember now. But basically, there was a there was a point where. I mean, you're looking back a couple hundred years ago, there's the point there where they caught people that did things within a day, tried them and, and hung them. Hanged. I get in trouble for that all the time. It's not hung, it's hanged. Uh, <laughs> within a week of the murder. And then there's a, there's becomes a bit of a lax period in the middle where it takes months and years and everything to find them. And then there's that kind of true crime epiphany that happened in the 70s and 80s where actually police work caught up with how clever the criminals were and started looking at and piecing together different pieces that allowed people to be found and stopped. So you went from that, we were able to do it, to don't really know what happened in the middle there, to modern technology catching up again. And it did take modern technology, you know, a simple thing as a computer filing system. Oh, hang on, this happened here and here. These are these are two things that we can put together. And that, that kind of brings about a new... In fact, it probably brings about the period that I don't find as interesting. <laughs> right? Uh, it's it's, too, it's all two piece thing. When it's all on the computer, it's not as interesting as we found this because somebody found a, an accidental thumbprint that he'd left while signing a form, or you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, but yeah, that whole seventies and eighties re resurgence that um, that you can almost pin down all the kind of main famous American speci- specifically serial killers to that time period um, was probably just good police work. Well, I think a combination of police work and diagnosis, in a way. Yeah. Um, picking up on patterns. Because you know, humans behave fairly predictably and fairly logically, and that's even when what they're doing is wildly irrational, they still make sense in a logical way. You just sort of have to, to check your morals at the door, right? And so, <laughs> I mean, I've sat in the room with serial killers. and That's cool. You know, talk to the, I used to work at the New Hampshire prison for men and there were a couple of, of repeat offenders and I would, you know, I wouldn't go too far down the, like, I would, I would often start off with, please do not tell me about crimes of yours that you've not been prosecuted for. Yeah. I don't want to know that. I don't need to know that. I don't want to know that. I don't want to be in the moment in that. Like if, if that is information you need to share, we will get you a lawyer, but please do not tell me because fuck that. Because like, <laughs> I'm not that person. That's not for me. No, no. And, you know, but they, you know, talking to them and, and hearing them talk about like, this is like one, one of the, one of the, one of the men I spoke to, he got caught because his, he had false identification and false credit cards and he had maxed out his false credit card. And so he used his real name on a credit card to check into a hotel. <laughs> and that's, yeah. you know, and, and it was just like, that's so profoundly stupid. Like, why do you not sleep on a park bench that night? Like, I don't. Yeah. Th- think, think about <laughs> what you're doing here. This just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, you know, and, and, a lot of it, he admitted, he's like, I had gone, I had gone long enough without getting caught that I kind of felt like I couldn't get caught. 
but he was on the radar already. His fingerprints had been found at a scene. And so they had his name. They just didn't have him. And then he used his own credit card at a hotel and they got, you know, and it was just like, this is not a good, good again, again, with the visual quotes, it's just not a good story. No, he, that's given, <laughs> given up entirely. Like that's almost an admission of going. I mean, if you've been smart enough to get that far, without using your you know your 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 real identity to make that choice to do it you've made a choice to get caught yeah that to me say screams uh i want out rather than um it's either a lapse a drunk lapse of judgment or a scream of help i want out well or or just such profound narcissism <laughs> yeah of, it could be that as well get yeah. caught and yeah, and that indeed. that sort of was his that's what at least what he told me but again people lie especially in prison and so i i could totally believe that this man was lying to me about i chose to get caught i you know i or not so much chose but like i i felt like i couldn't get caught you know sort of a bravado rather yeah. than saying look i was just a fucking moron <laughs> yeah no that's too much <laughs> that's too much of an admission for most i would imagine well especially in prison right you got to have that 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 front that that appearance of uh, in, immortality or invulnerability yeah what are what are some of your you, you talked about stories what are your what are you, and i'm going to use it in visual quotes again but what are some of your favorite stories so my absolute favorite and um it's the one that anybody ever says to me which which episode should i listen to first and it's um oh god now it's episode nine uh, of twisted britain so we're going back away uh, so uh, you do have to excuse our mic techniques and our editing ability at that point. But the story is that of the Mull Air mystery. Uh, and I make no pretense about this. When I started doing Twisted Britain, I like historical stuff. Like history, I was brought up, my mother's a history buff. Uh, I like that kind of history of Scotland history, especially Scotland. But the history of Britain is, is, is a really fascinating, fucking twisted thing. But it's, it's fascinating nonetheless. But I like the wee, the wee weird stories, and the, the Mull Air mystery is one that uh, struck a chord with me. It was a guy that was flying a private plane um, out to a, a, a tiny island called Mull, just off the east coast. Uh, no, sorry, the west coast of Scotland. And it was New Year's, uh, New Year's time, kind of Christmas time, and he had landed in a storm. Uh, him and his uh, partner were looking for a property to buy. Uh, and over a couple of drinks uh, at the pub, he, they said, nobody uses this airstrip in the winter because when the storms roll in, you can't land on this airstrip. And he went, I can. Uh, and off he went, uh, having, you know, the, bar, the most of the bar tell him, you can't go out there. Um, he said, well, yeah, I can do this. Watch this. So they saw a couple of lights of his torch heading out to, a, out to the plane. Plane takes off. He was going to circle the island, land it again. Right, you owe me all the way around the drinks. They never found the plane ever again. And even an initial search of the island, uh, they never found a body. Well, not for three months anyway. And three months later, on the hillside behind the hotel that they were staying in, they found his body slumped over a tree stump. So there's a few things that go alongside that. Is knowing the sound of mull, the bit of water between the Scottish mainland and the island, if you went down in there around about Christmas, New Year, there's no fucking way you were swimming to shore. It's three degrees and running, running fast water. Um, 
and it, not finding the body in the initial search and then finding it later not um, decomposing screams uh, plant to me. There's a few other things that were happening on the mainland at the same time. There'd just been a big diamond heist in Edinburgh. And uh, there's loads of little bits and pieces that never, ever got tied up. As to, and why, why it's still a mystery to this day. The British Navy think they found the plane on the bottom of the water, uh, bottom of the ocean, but then they also caveated it with that could have been a World War Two plane that they found. It's just so deep they'll never know. So it's that kind of story aspect of things that I like. That's a you know that's exactly those those sorts of there's so many when 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 you don't know the psychology behind it and you start to apply the psychology behind it. Like I love those sort of thought exercises. Yeah. And um, well, we when we talked about this the case, we talked about the whole idea of like, was the guy using it as an out? Did he just fly back to the mainland and pick up a couple of guys that had done a diamond heist and bugger off? That's the let's go to a desert island dream scenario. There, the 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 other end of that is, you know, did he belly out drunk trying to <laughs> land a plane on a tiny island and then have to swim to shore? But he was so drunk he made it. You know, they're the two. <laughs> extreme ends of it but I, the the bit that always screams at me is like his partner now they weren't married it was his fiance it was still sat in the bar <laughs> with no way home <laughs> just like her husband's gone her ride home's gone it's i'm sure i think it was was it christmas eve or new year's eve so you know you're supposed to be having a party that night either way not having a party um I, I don't know what happened to her. <laughs> and I really looked and have no idea what happened to her. So her mind must have been f- just spinning. Absolutely spinning. That is one of, you're touching on one of my favorite aspects of not not true crime. Because true crime focuses on primarily the perpetrators with a little bit of sort of head-tilting sympathy and they're there pat on the head for the victims without actually personifying the victims very well um yeah as a rule for you know for most shows um but what i always have been fascinated with and i mean i would add this onto my list of like 17 podcasts that i would start if i felt like i could uh, is (laughs) talking to family of perpetrators you know of either you know or whatever this guy i don't know this guy was a perpetrator but you know what i mean yeah um you know the uh everybody who is sitting in prison has somebody on the outside yes that is impacted by this either by sharing a name or having lost a partner or lost a father or you know or just left in a bar on new year's eve waiting for them to come home <laughs> yeah. and and i w- i want to talk to these people and just hear I think I know what some of that is like, but I don't know, you know, for sure. And those are people who may be compelled to testify, but otherwise you don't hear their story. Yeah, and that's that's why I always say story when I when when I'm talking about um Twisted Britain. I've always said that, you know, we I try and stick to the hum, hum the human side, the humanity side, and I know it's crime and that's why we always say with a sprinkling of weird macabre, because actually uh, the Muller mystery. It's very, I mean, the only crime involved there is the speculation of a diamond heist and probably drunk flying. But I don't know the laws <laughs> around that. Um, especially on tiny little islands off the Scottish coast, there probably aren't that many laws. Um, but I always say story because if you want details, there are other podcasts. If you want facts, figures, details, and dates, 
there are other podcasts for you to go and listen to that were probably talking about the same kind of stuff as, as, as I do. If you want to hear me tell you the story of a person, and that's why I always start a podcast. Like So the the one I did for um, Raymond of uh, 5 and 30 with Ruck was the, the story of Carl Hans Lodi, who was a um, German spy who got caught and executed in the Tower of London, who was the first person to get executed in 138 years in the Tower of London. He had an incredible story before he became a spy. You know, he was a world traveler, worked in the uh, German Merchant Navy, then worked on a, a transcontinent, a transcontinent, yeah, transatlantic, sorry, cruise liner for Germans going to America, uh, almost married into a massive brewing family in the States and stuff. I find all that stuff fascinating. Yeah, okay, he was also a spy and tried to, you know, destroy the Western world. But, you know, that that's the end part. Yeah, the sto- okay. You know. Yeah. We'll get to that at the end, but who's who is this guy? I mean, he was a bad bastard. Mm. He goes on my list, but I like the who are these people? So you know, you talk about a poisoner. You know, the 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 crime might have happened over a week, but they're forty odd years old. Um, what did it take to get to there? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why I would say I always tell stories. If you want to listen to uh, true crime facts. Uh, there's loads of British true crime podcasts that will tell you much better facts than I will. True crime enthusiasts, UK true crime, they walk among us, seeing red. They all cover facts better than I do. Uh, but yeah, I like a story. Well, and you're, I mean, you're speaking my language there. Like, that's very much why I started a show. And in, in mine initially started in true crime because that's what I knew. That's what I did. I would listen to a narrated, researched, fact based story. And sometimes they would say, like, why Why did this happen? Why were they found not guilty by reason of insanity? Or, you know, what does this mean that they had schizophrenia or whatever? And I'd be like, ooh, ooh I know the answer. Mm. Ask me, ask me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided I'm going to start my own podcast because I know those answers. Yeah. And just over time, it was like, well, that's – that humanity, that that collection of story is – what jazzes me up more than I, I don't want to create tragedy porn, you know, murder yeah. porn. I don't like that. I, I It's just not my, my thing. I want to focus on how do you end up in this moment? Yeah, in absolutely. Time? And, yeah, and so that's, that's why I've always enjoyed Twisted Britain. And, you know, because like I, I have nothing but respect for the, the shows that are fact based and narrative based, but I, I, I vibe more with the shows that bring the humanity to those to the yeah. story, and, and absolutely. And I would say that, like uh, the, the podcast I've just mentioned, and all the other true crime podcasters in in, in Britain, I, I love their shows. It's just I'm not I'm not capable of creating that show uh, because that's mm-hmm. not what that's not what drives my that's not what tickles my fancy. Um, I I like the 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 without saying again that I like the story of the humanity of it. Um, and I'm not like I, I, with you. I'm not taking away from them, uh, but it's something that we always tried to walk a fine line with when we when we started Twisted Britain. We didn't want to be another. Oh, by the way, here's another. Here's another thing about Fred West. You know, here's another thing about uh, the Lockerbie disaster. Here's another thing about whatever. Can't add anything to them. Uh, and we made a list, mm-hmm. Nadine and I, that I'm going to stick to. We made a list of things that we were never going to cover, uh, and uh, the general reasons why we were never going to cover them was. I can't add anything to that, and I feel that it doesn't need to be retold. 
So the stories we would go and try and find, or cases we would go and try and find, would be things that have either not been told enough or enough people haven't heard of, or things that really get us going as, this is something I want to tell. And I think that's where we tried to find a, a difference in the way we developed Twisted Britain 2, where it was with the two of us, and now where it is now. And I know, I've spoken to Dean since we started doing this, I know she's happy with what I'm doing with it, which was important to me that she was, because it's still part of her. And and no one will ever see that list of things that we're, ne- we're not going to cover, because there's a reason they're on that list. Um, whereas the things like uh, taking the time out to do, and one of the hardest like, pieces of research I ever did was the stuff into the Breck Bedner case. And Breck Bedner was um, groomed online by another 18-year-old. Breck was, uh, oh my goodness, Breck was 14 or 15 at the time. He was groomed by mm-hmm. an 18-year-old. And then uh, just through an online game server, you know, they, they were both gaming online and chatting through a server uh, and ended up killed by an 18-year-old who he thought was going to help put him through university and all this kind of stuff. And it was really touched a, a, a chord with me because I'm a gamer and I grew up, you know, gaming, and I've got uh, I've got a, a toddler there that is going to be on the internet more, even more than you and I have ever been, um, and that scared me. So I was like, well, I need to to research this case and talk about it. And the nice thing that came out of it was we spoke at the end about the the Breck Bednar Foundation, which is a place that parents can go to to learn about how to keep their children safe online. And if we took, if we could manage to help one or two persons in that direction, then the fifty or other episodes of Twisted Britain not don't matter, but are inconsequential compared to being able to help somebody in that way. And that case would never have come about if we hadn't made the decision to stay away from big cases. That makes complete sense. I, you know, and I have a lot of respect for that. Like it's to me, the big cases are sort of low hanging fruit. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much information and there's so many opinions and once in a while I'll, I'll catch a show, you know, cause I'll listen. I, you know, I'm still a fan of many true crime podcasters um, on both sides of the pond um, more because I always am interested to see like what you have a list of facts, which ones do you choose and how do you tell the story of the person? Like, so there's still an element of story there. Um, but but I feel like there's so much written about them already. There's so much out there that it becomes a challenge to pare it down to, to an make hour. it your own. Yeah, yeah. But how do you, how do you do that? How do you how do you pick and choose which aspects of this particular story are important to tell, um, and and what do you do with it? But I'm I'm much more interested in either stories that place a case in historical significance a context yes you know so the th- the things that you're describing you know the the it's one thing to know that someone did a poisoning but it's a, a bigger thing to know how did they become that what what was life like at that yes, particular time frame yeah so especially with things like you know poisoners in the 1800s in, in the UK had so much available over-the-counter um, products. Products is an interesting choice of word there. Well, products to kill somebody <laughs> with. Um, you know, b- b- uh, female uh, beauty therapy was based around arsenic and everything like that at the time. You know, there's, there was loads of things. So what I find interesting is the, the, the availability of that, for instance, for 
35, 40 years of your life before you decide to make use of it? You know, where's where's the where's the change point there that makes you go from, oh, you know, I'm just going to make sure I look a little bit whiter today for the upper class gentleman to, I'm going to kill that upper class gentleman. <laughs> right? <laughs> which, no, absolutely. I mean, I, a... I, my, my example similarly is the Lizzie Borden case. Um, yes. That she's known to have gone out and attempted to buy arsenic two or three times in the days before the axe murders. And this is just at the point of time where we started to write down who was buying arsenic or allow the purveyor to say, no, you can't have this. Yeah. And that's an interesting moment in time for me. Because she was, what, turn of the, turn of the century kind of time? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, 18, 1893, I believe. Right, so yeah, same kind of time frame I'm talking about here with the, the kind of Glasgow Square Mile murders was 1870s, um, mm-hmm. and one of them, the the woman that was doing the poisoning, could only get a certain amount from each shop because she had to sign the book, but there was no checkup. You, know, you can sign the book wherever the fuck you want. <laughs> Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse bought a lot right. of arsenic in those days, you know. Um, but it's I around about he that. Was suspicious. <laughs> it's that white bit in the middle of his face. That's how he got it. Um, <laughs> uh, the yeah, there was a lot of that was that kind of turn of the century thing when they actually started to realize that these things are really terrible for you. You could do something. We should maybe regulate, which is why yeah. you see a, a drop off in poisoners. Yeah, different poisons and different medications, and yeah, it's it's just it's fascinating, and you know, and I do. I, I understand the fascination with true crime. I, I, I have it. I mean, it's my, my sort of my life's work in, in many <laughs> ways. Uh, but I listened for a long time without starting my own show because I felt like exactly what you were saying, that there are already people who do the thing, who tell the story and do the, you know, do the research behind it better than I can. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. I, not, I don't agree with it better than you, but from me, well, I mean, they could. <laughs> um, yeah, I would know. Like, there are people out there who do research better than than you and I both can. That I I sit in awe of, but I also sit in the camp that I go, I could do all that research and I'd still tell you a story. Right, right, exactly. It's just it's bringing a different voice. And you, we had, you know, to bring it all the way full circle. You know, we talked about the pandemic and how if it goes on too long we're going to have a rash of divorces i believe that we're going to have a, a baby boom you know toward the end of the year and a, a sing- i also a single parent baby boom <laughs> yeah exactly. that's my bet exactly. single parent single parent baby boom that's my bet and as well they're all going to start podcasts i hope so bring bring I more people i don't know if i hope so i don't know but make this more mainstream uh, I th- okay. I, I'm, I'm, well, I'm actually I'm in two minds about that. I would like more people to listen to podcasts, and I think the only way more people can listen to podcasts, and I don't mean specifically mine. I mean, you and I are both a member of a, a wonderful uh, Discord community that have incredible creators on there um, that don't get the listens that you you and I do, and that's because we're well. Speaking for myself, I'm, I'm creating in a niche market. You know, yeah, true crime is huge. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if you you throw a true crime podcast out there, you're going to get people to listen to it, whether they like it or not. Who knows? But you will get listeners. Some of those audio drama creators, and I'm thinking of like Phil that creates uh, Ethereum, for instance. That podcast is incredible, and I'm a massive fan of it. Um, 
granted, I like my dark fantasy stuff anyway, but he's not getting the listening numbers that he deserves. And to me, the more people that start creating brings more people into that podcasting community. There has to be a tipping point where we want to stop. I don't want more shit made, but anything that brings more people to that podcasting um, mainstream media, or making it a mainstream media, the better for creators that are spending hundreds and hundreds of hours creating content that, that takes more time and effort to create than, than my show does. I would hope to see an upturn in their numbers as well as my own. I mean, I'm going to be hugely selfish here. I'd love to give up my job and podcast forever and just do that, but that's not going to happen until it's you turn on a podcast, not the radio. Fair. Fair. I mean, yeah, I, I, I absolutely, but podcasting is a, the dream that many of us have that we're not going to be able to make full time. But I, I mean, I, I agree that, that there are many shows that are just objectively better than mine that are better sound quality better put together better arc better story but they don't get the listens um because they are more niche or because people just fall to the murder porn you know and they they don't yeah listen to more than that so absolutely i like i i would love more listens i just <laughs> i don't have any patience for the style of podcast that is either almost entirely inside jokes or almost entirely swearing and drinking without much research <laughs> i could probably name one or two that you're probably thinking of but... <laughs> i know we're both very carefully not naming those you know because i i want to put positive spin on the ones that i want people to listen to but then these other ones i'm like uh, or you could not or or maybe maybe skip that but i but i you know because like you said at the end of the day if people start listening to podcasts then they're more likely to listen to others and i think that that's important yeah and and i mean speaking personally as a not as a content creator as a, as a content consumer now i started listening to uh one podcast the first podcast i ever listened to was suggested to me by somebody who said it was actually nothing to do with the fact that it was a, a crime show it was um criminal phoebe judges uh, this is criminal mm -hmm. um Still think one of the best podcasts out there. Um, but there was a, an episode in it about a police uh, scuba diver. And a friend of my wife's went, oh, you like diving. You'd probably like this show. And I, you know, well, we're three years, four years down the line and I'm creating my own content. But from listening to Criminal as the first one, I then found um, things that I listen to weekly. Uh, and because I opened up that app on my phone, I now found... You know, rather, I don't turn the, the radio on anymore. I listen to 15, 16, 20 hours of podcasts a week without mm. noticing what I'm doing. Not so much at the moment because I'm not commuting, but when I'm commuting, you know, you probably a day's worth of podcasts over 10 days easily. Um, and I found that by opening up that app that would probably not have been opened unless I'd been suggested it. Um, and all it takes is somebody else to go, have you heard this episode of Twisted Britain? Or have you heard this episode of ignorance was bliss you'd love it and as soon as they start looking at that you know the, the also in this category or featured for you or whatever it happens to be in whichever app you're in opens mm -hmm. up a, a rabbit hole of millions of hours of content that if i could i would listen to all of but i can't and actually i wouldn't listen to all of it because there's a couple of podcasts that i started listening to and went i don't get the yeah. hype yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, but absolutely, and I think that that's that's very very true. Is just try it. Just you know, I've been so the first three years that I listened to podcasts, I stayed in a pretty specific niche of sort of true crime and history, um, yep. which was a, a carryover from my job and very factual, very narrative based. Like that was my comfort zone and it's where I stayed. And then starting last summer, summer of 2019, I, 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 because I was dealing with some heavy stuff in my own life, I needed to move away from crime. And so I started listening to more fictional things and more humor, you know, comedy things or, or whatever. And that has created this whole like, oh, right. Oh, there's this whole other area of podcasting that is not true crime and that is not murder porn. And it's been a mental exercise for me in, in flexing and thinking differently and consuming in a different way than I used to. And I think that that's magic. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and, and it is consuming in a different way. And that's the thing I like about it. It's about consuming in your own time, um, in your own headspace and whatever you want to listen to at that time. You know, I have probably like you, I have a list of true crime podcasts that I listen to. But I've also sprinkled in there. I've got things um, that are funny. I've got things that are factual. I've got things that, I mean, one of my favorite go-tos every week is no such thing as a fish. And mm. I just, I mean, if you want to talk about research, there's there's a level of research that I will never get to. Um, but the injection of humor in that is if you're walking, you know, you can walk to, I can walk to the pub in 15, 20 minutes from where I am just now. And I can listen to that for 15 minutes, turn it off, go in, have a couple of pints or record an episode of Twisted Britain, jump outside, press play again, and walk back down the road. And you can lose yourself in it, but still not have to have that full immersion of music. Or I haven't had to wait till a certain time till it's broadcast. Or it's that way of consuming it at my speed, at the uh, in the genre that I want to. It's magic. It, 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 you know, for me, it's... I guess comparable. I, I have uh, chronic insomnia and I have different podcasts that I can listen to at different times of the night. So early in the night is when I can listen to funny things, uh, but I can't listen to them too late because if I laugh, I wake my husband. So <laughs> I have to <laughs> yeah. be careful about that. And then sort of there's a phase of time where I can listen to like long arc stories you know, or deep dives, that kind of thing. And then as I start to get tired, I have to switch over to that sort of narrative fact-based crime or history. And I'm always careful with how I word it because you don't want to say to somebody like, look, your show puts me to sleep. <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't mean it's boring ever. I mean, I'm familiar enough with the story that I can just sort of appreciate your voice and your delivery and i can drift off to it knowing that i can come back to it later it's one of the best creepy compliments i've ever had was somebody telling me <laughs> that they loved falling asleep to my voice and uh, i was like um okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean exactly and so i'm very careful with with when i sort of admit that you know but but with the pod like every podcast i've ever listened to <laughs> at some point in time, I have at least gone to bed with the host and likely slept with them. 
Well, I hope to fall into that category. <laughs> indeed, indeed. No, absolutely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So, yeah, to back up a little, the concept of a mental health crisis during time of pandemic is both more likely and harder to treat. This is not at all saying, therefore, suck up and deal or ignore it or try to wait another day or two before you seek help or any of the things. It just means it might be harder. It might be longer in the ER. It might be a uh, I don't even know, like, I legit don't know how they're going to handle it because we in the U.S. had a shortage of beds before this happened, and I, <laughs> politicians don't like to give money toward mental health, especially under the current administration. So just, you may have to be even more outspoken of an advocate for yourself or a loved one in order to get the help that you need. And that blows. Like, I hate it so much. And if you can't do it yourself, wave a white flag, speak up, let somebody help you. Let somebody feel like they've done everything they can because, trust me when I say that, really really matters. Didn't you feel better before you knew that? Bob, thank you so much for coming to play. I still don't know how we managed to take so long to get together, but cool, cool. It works. If you're looking for the episode of his that talks about the mole air mystery, it's his episode nine. And I really just like the premise of sitting in a Scottish pub talking about true crime. And so it's one more item to add to my to-do list, you know? Thank you guys for listening. And I'm going to plug my Facebook group again. It is not at all ever meant to be any sort of replacement for mental health treatment. But it is a way to connect to people and... It's a good group, like very minimal ass hattery, which is pretty exciting. We've been doing Skype calls twice a week lately. On Saturdays, we play Cards Against Humanity, 
maybe eventually Jackbox. I haven't decided. The times on that shift around to try to give people in different time zones a chance to join in. And then on Wednesdays, I've started a craft circle, which I don't know if you could see the visual quotes there, but boy, were they big. I don't care if you craft at all, ever, and I don't care how much of a circle you are. It's just a time to check in with people and bullshit. Like, that's what we do. And anybody's welcome to join anytime on that as, as well. It's just, I think, a good way to touch base and it's something to look forward to. This week marked one year since my dad died. And I'm not quite ready yet to do another episode about suicide or about my dad and about my grief and so on. That's on the list, I think. But I'm not there right now. And I'm absolutely certain that if I didn't have the the craft circle thing to, you know, start a group call and check in with people, I wouldn't have gotten out of bed that day. And the fact that I did have that reason ultimately led to me getting up and getting dressed and moving around and smiling and laughing when I totally didn't expect to. So just, it's an open invitation and I'll continue reminding you once in a while that you're welcome if you want to come play. I don't know what's coming up next, but I only have like three or four episodes stacked up because I've slacked way back on recording lately, uh, feeling overwhelmed and feeling dark and down and intense and all of the things. So, I mean, either I got to start recording more often or I've got to accept a slower pace or maybe some combination of the two. We'll find out. I don't know. Until then, stay sane. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.